0: Welcome to the Matt Waller Podcast, where we look at success at the intersection of technology, logistics, supply chain, retail, and CPG, also known as the retail value chain. I want to clarify that this podcast is distinct from my responsibilities as a professor in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Nonetheless, it aligns with my aspiration to provide practical insights to professionals and business by showcasing companies and people that can enhance your ability to, to manage, lead, and strategize and market effectively in the retail value chain. Before we dive into today's exciting episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, New Road Capital Partners. New Road invests in proven technologies, services, and products that serve unmet needs in the marketplace. They look for companies in supply chain and logistics, as well as consumer-oriented companies. For more information, go to CP. Dot com I would also like to disclose that I am a strategic advisor to New Road. I'd also like to recognize podcastvideos.com for the services they provide for these podcasts. I'm very pleased with their services. And now without further ado, let's get into the exciting episode. I have with me today Craig Harper, who spent 32 years at JB Hunt and he just recently retired. Um, although he's still serving as a consultant to J.B. Hunt. Um, Craig is someone I've known for a long time. We've had him speak to our classes for many years um, at the university. Um, And he is what I call a boundary spanner. He's always aware of cutting-edge technology. He always takes a broad view, and you're going to hear that today. Um, If you have any interest in transportation, freight transportation, especially an interest in alternative fuels like electric. You're really going to find this interesting uh, because we talk about electric. What are the constraints to electrifying freight transportation? Uh, What kind of innovations are needed? What is the total cost? These are things that we really need to be thinking about. So I think if you're an entrepreneur... You should probably listen to this because anywhere there's challenges, there's opportunities. And we point to a lot of challenges. And uh, so if you're an entrepreneur, uh, you'll probably hear uh, some opportunities for businesses by understanding what these challenges are. Uh, If you're in the investment community, uh, this is definitely worth uh, paying attention to because it may affect how you view where you put your resources. If you're in a transportation executive, uh, a shipper... Shippers really, I think, a lot of times don't understand um, the total big picture. Uh, Sometimes, for example, when they want to improve the carbon footprint, they're looking at the wrong thing sometimes, or they're not looking at the total picture. Uh, And if you're a policymaker, I think that you'll find this very interesting. But uh, Craig has been, um, he was with J.B. Hunt, uh, as I said, for 32 years um, for I think over 25 years, he was executive vice president in different roles. He's been um, chief sustainability officer, chief operating officer, um, and he's, he's just got broad experience in this field. Uh, so I think you're really going to enjoy this and learn a lot. I did. I learned a lot through this. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. So Craig, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I always love visiting with you, and every time, I always walk away with some new insight and learning, so look forward to it. Well, you know, Craig, um, one thing about you that you've heard me say before, and many people have heard me say, is you're one of the most extensive boundary spanners I know. You're always looking at things going on on the boundaries, and so early on in your career at J.B. Hunt, it didn't take long, and you were starting to look at alternative fuels, beyond diesel what got you interested in that you know it's uh, always uh, intriguing to me
1: to kind of see what's coming down um, the pike you know what what are we going to see next and there's no question when you start hearing about um, climate change the debate about climate change uh, getting off fossil fuels uh, how fast solar was growing what about wind um, then you start seeing that so much of the emissions are due to transportation. It's like, well, what can we do in the field of transportation? And since the J.B. Hunt, you know, we, that's what we're in, this transportation, the uh, moving goods. So that was an area that I thought would be very important to learn about and see what we could do and the impact that we could have. How real was it? How soon could we do that? And could it really be commercially viable? And how long would it take to get there if it could indeed be commercially viable?
0: So, you know, you and I have talked a lot about electric and hydrogen and but I'm curious, let's focus a little bit on electric, if you wouldn't mind. Obviously, there's gotta be infrastructure development for electric. What do you view as the key infrastructure requirements for a successful transition? Too electric.
1: Yeah, I think many people are looking at this um, incorrectly. They're, they're talking about the charging network, getting those chargers set up. You know, we have people calling us about trying to get uh, set up with some uh, public charging and all, but you really need to go upstream. It's like, where's that power going to come from? And I think that's where it starts. And that's something that we all got to look at and all have to be honest with. And look at the condition that we're we're currently facing, and when you do that, you start seeing that our our grid system has been was built out fast. It's been very efficient. I mean, all of us go into our homes every day and just flip the light switch and things work, and we get upset, you know, if our power goes down for five minutes, thirty minutes, or whatever, and we just expect it to always be on well. When you say, let's go ahead and electrify transportation, and we need to do the math about how much electricity that really means. And that's where I think people have failed. I think there's people who have done the math, and we need to get those facts out there. And if they are facts, let's validate them. If they're not, let's correct them. And one thing that I've seen when we get into talking about electrification and vehicles and all, in the vehicles themselves. It seems like people take the best of all these different scenarios and put it all together, and, and you can't do that. So um, you, you've got to stick with the facts. Let's challenge one another. I don't care what side you're on, whether you're on the totally green side and believe we ought to get off fossil fuels totally, or whether you're on the pure fossil side of things. Let's stick to the facts. Let's discuss them. Get them out there. Let's debate them. And when you do that, you can start seeing um, how long it looks like this could possibly take right now. Having said that, I believe there's going to be some major breakthroughs. I believe in the innovation. I believe that it's going on worldwide, just not in the U.S., but worldwide. Tons of money is going into this. There's been tons of hours and very smart people working on it. And I believe that people will come up with something, a major breakthrough, and it is hard to uh, determine what that's going to be. But right now, one thing I do know is that we're short of power. Because when you start looking at the amount of vehicles that are on the road, whether they're heavy-duty vehicles or light, uh, medium, and heavy-duty vehicles, it's going to take a lot of electricity. Put it in perspective. If you were to... Electrify, the heavy-duty fleet in America right now.
0: So are you talking about primarily over-the-road? Over-the-road trucks. Full uh, truckload trucking? Truckload trucking. Would that include, um, like, private carriage? Yes. LTL? Yes. So just all of the semi-tractor trails? All That's correct. Okay.
1: It's estimated that would be an increase of 10.6% of electric demand in the U.S. that our electricity generation would need to go up, let's round up, to 11%. Okay. Just to power the heavy-duty That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay. Then, if you do the light, medium, and heavy-duty, we're looking at over a 40% increase in the current demand that we have for electricity. Think about that. We're already having blackouts in certain states, and now you want to go ahead and increase this demand by 40%. And then also think about that 60% of our transmission lines and all are over their expected life expectancy of 50 years. They're already over it. They're over it. So we have a lot of work that needs to go on to upgrade our current system without any additional increase. And now we would like to put on that a demand of 10, 15, 20, 30, 40%. And I don't believe people really have looked into how long that's going to take to do that. Think about where those lines need to run. Think about the land that it's going to have to traverse. Think about the opposition that it could run into at different points. And when you talk about, uh, well, let's do more renewables. Well, I'm a fan of renewables. I'm a fan of all electricity uh, sources. We can talk about that in a minute. But if you do the more more renewables, which we we do need to focus on and get that going, but you have to understand you got to get that electricity to where it's consumed. So, again, you have to have that infrastructure. You have to have those power lines. And so that puts more demand on what we already have as far as an issue for skilled labor to put in these power lines to upgrade the ones we already have, and to build additional ones. So yes, our grid system needs a lot lot of work, and I don't think people have done the math. I believe where it's going to be evident is in California, because California has really placed demands on the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, to produce so many electric vehicles. They've also been putting the demands and working through it right now on the carriers to own and operate so many electric vehicles. For an example, in starting in January of this year, 2024, any additional truck that you add to your fleet that goes into a rail yard or into a, a port is supposed to be a zero-emission vehicle. And that is if the, the carb regs stay the way they are currently, Zero emission, I meaning it needs to be battery, electric, or hydrogen fuel cell. That's in 2024, th- this year.
0: Okay, now. So you look at the current number of pieces of equipment you have in California, and then any additional ones have to be electric. Yes,
1: because you were to register all your ICE engines, the internal combustion engine trucks the Diesels you're supposed to have those registered by December 31st of 2023 any truck you added to that registry to go into a port or rail yard was to be zero emission vehicle there were there definitely were companies that were um, putting themselves in position to have their fleets size where they thought they needed to have it size to operate. For the next couple of years and keep running those internal combustion engines. And the good thing is if they did buy new internal combustion engines in 2023, then that is a, a vehicle that is much cleaner than the trucks that have been on the roads for years that are, are running in and out of the ports all the time. So I don't think the industry has received enough credit for the improvement they've made and how much cleaner the trucks are today than what they have been in the past.
0: So, but the But California is going to run into a problem where as they start adding electric capacity, as the carriers add electric capacity, then they may have trouble getting enough electricity for these trucks.
1: That's where I say people haven't done the math and there's going to be a day of reckoning because those of us um, who have operated electric trucks and understand about the charging requirements and all and can do the math as to what it's going to take to electrify your whole fleet. We understand how much power that's going to take. So now you put in a request with the utility company to provide that much power. You can go to their website on some utilities and see how much of power is available. And I know of companies that are applying for power to where when you go on the website looking for the amount of power available, it's one-tenth of what the company needs. That's one trucking company by itself. There are many trucking companies out hmm. in California. So that's where people that didn't do the math to see how much power this was really going to take and how soon there were going to be demands of these companies to have that power to charge their equipment, they're going to see that it's going to take time. They're going to see they're going to see that they will need more substations, they'll need more lines pulled, and that it's not going to happen as soon as what they would like. You know, I think Bill Gates said it best when he said that you have to have policy, technology, and the markets all coming together at the same time. And right now, you have some people pushing for policy before the technology and the markets are there. The, the technology is there as far as it working in the power being able to, a uh, truck that has the power that can run electricity and pull the load, it operates great. But where the technology falls short is how much that piece of equipment weighs, how much it costs, how long it takes to charge, and where can you get the charging. Because what some people fail to remember is that you had diesel overtake gasoline as the fuel of choice in the 50s. You had the truck stop started building out their infrastructure in the 70s. So from the 70s through today, so you've had over 50 years of building out this infrastructure that has worked so well. That if we, if the trucking industry has a driver miss an exit to get fuel, they can get it the next exit. But it isn't going to be that way with electricity. And then also you look at the fuel time. This is where I'll make the point about how people take the best of all scenarios and and put it together and you can't do that. The fuel time, you'll hear uh, statements like it recharges in 30 minutes, 80% charge in 30 minutes. You'll hear that there's a weight penalty of only a few thousand pounds. You'll hear that the cost isn't that much more significant than, you know, an internal combustion truck. But then when you look at it, what they're doing is they're taking the cost of the smaller battery, they're taking the charge time of the smaller battery, but they're taking the range that they talk about of the larger battery, and you can't do that. If you're going to talk about uh, fuel times, for example, the re-energizing times, if you take the current electric trucks out there, you will see them charge at a rate of about three miles a minute. If you see some of the megawatt uh, batteries coming out and charging systems for a megawatt, you would see that you could fill uh, possibly a nine- miles 12 miles a minute diesel fills at a rate of 250 miles a minute so if you're a driver are you going to want to sit at the three mile per minute the nine mile per minute or the 250 mile per minute re-energizing station now people will say well that isn't how it works because we're going to recharge these trucks at night when power cost is much cheaper and when the drivers are at home sleeping. Well, that's fine, but transportation doesn't totally shut down when it gets dark. Okay. And so you're going to have to re energize during the night. Also, you're going to have to re energize during the day because you talk about the range again. The range, see, anywhere from 220 to 250 miles. And that will work in a lot of cases, but in a lot of cases it doesn't work. And you're going to have to re-energize that truck, especially if you run two shifts. And in our business, in trucking, you you want to utilize the equipment. You didn't buy it to sit. And so if you're going to double shift that truck, you're going to have to recharge it. And so when people say you can get 80% charge in 30 minutes, let's think about that. You know, you take a truck of 220, 250 miles, okay, and when that truck comes in, it's going to come in around 20% left over. A driver's not going to let it get down to 2 or 3% left. They're going to have range anxiety. They're going to say, okay, i got to refuel getting close to that 20% mark. Then if you get it to 80% capacity, that's the time you're talking about you getting 30 minutes. Okay, now you're playing with 60% of the range, you're going from the 20% to the 80% ranges where you're playing and you do 60% of 220 or 60% of 250, that's drastically cut your your miles down. So that's where people got to, again, stick to the facts about what is the real range, what is the real weight penalty, what is the re-energizing time, and what's the cost, which we hadn't talked about. And the cost right now is more than three times the cost of, of a diesel truck. So... I'm a fan of electric, and just be sure and say that. I believe it's, it's great. I've driven the trucks. I've ridden in the trucks. Drivers love the trucks. But what they don't like is that range anxiety and not knowing where they're going to be able to re-energize and if they're out there on the road. And so then you talk about getting it back to the facility and charging overnight. Okay, well, who bought the property to do all that? When most trucking companies bought the property for their terminals and all, they weren't counting on having all this charging infrastructure in place. So there's a lot of challenges going on, but it it will work. I just don't think it's going to work quite as fast as what some people would hope for. So yeah, I'm very optimistic. Love to, that, that I've been able to see some of
0: this on the front line and can't wait to see how it develops out. So... Let me restate something I heard. For class, If we replaced all Class 8 trucks right now with electric, it would increase demand by 11%. Correct. If we also went to carriers that had medium and lightweight trucks and converted them, it would increase it by 40%. Yes. So together we're talking 51%. No. No. Together you're talking 40%. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. 40%. All right. So 40%, and we have 50% of the transmission lines that need to be replaced. 60% of them are over their life expectancy right now. Okay. And we've got increasing demand. Yes. In the country. Aside from electrification of carriers, yeah. we've got increasing demand. All kinds of things are increasing demand on electricity. I think you know um AI, for example requires lots of electricity um down the road we talk about um quantum computing that takes a huge amount of electricity there's and and you know i you and I have talked about this before, but a long time ago um back in two thousand eleven um my favorite Wall Street Journal op ed piece was uh, by Mark Andreessen. And it was called, I know we've talked about this, uh, soft, Why Software is Eating the World. And just was the point was, and this was 2011, you know, we look back at that. You should reread it sometime, and you can see Mark was very prescient, you know. Um, and, um, but the more that becomes reality, the more you need electricity. And what we didn't talk about
1: was what about automobiles? Oh, we're just, okay, what about- We did not Okay, you know, when I speak to a group, I always ask, uh, how many of you have an electric lawnmower? We didn't used to have electric lawnmowers. And there will be, without fail, say 500 people, if there are 500 people in the room, there'll be eight, 10, 12 people. And so I'll ask somebody on the front row, Um, how come you don't have an electric lawnmower? And they go, well, um, uh, uh, you know, I think it costs more. Um, You know, I don't know if it's going to be able to mow my whole yard. I I don't know. Then I have to shut down to charge it or I have to buy an extra battery. And I go, you have those concerns and you have your own power station. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I bought a new car in the last, I guess, 12 months. And I really thought about getting an electric vehicle. But my daughter lives in Dallas. You know, it's like 340 miles. And we'd stay in a hotel when we go see her. And I've seen them charge an electric vehicle there before. And it was literally an extension cord coming out of the the front of the hotel. And I know others literally do have some chargers there. So that's great. But I don't want to have to think about where I'm going to charge on the way down there. Now, I know some people that doesn't bother. You know, I rented an electric vehicle um, and drove it. It was great. And, but we had to plan our trip differently and we're just not used to doing that. And people can say, well, maybe you better get used to doing it, but we're just not used to doing that. And when you have to pull in and take that 30 minutes to refuel versus eight, 10, 12 minutes to refuel, um, we're, we're more used to being able to get in and get out. And actually, when I was turning that car in the next day, I was letting an, a coworker use that same car. And we're under insurance policy that uh, with the company about you know, another employee could drive that car. So we we're all good there. But I saw I only had range left of about 40 miles. Well, I didn't want to give this individual a car that I didn't. You know, he should be able to get to the airport. But, um, you know, what happened if there's an accident or something and it has to be rerouted and it has have more miles. So I went, again, to go re-energize that vehicle and had to leave the terminal where I was and go about 12 miles to find a charger. And then I sat there just for about 15 minutes to get enough juice where I didn't feel guilty giving it to the individual to drive it. So. It does have to, you have to think differently, and we can all learn to do that, but it will be a difference in how we operate.
0: Yeah, when you try to get people to think differently, that's not easy. Um, there's so many things that are happening because of this. If you think about, you know, they found a huge lithium uh, deposits deposits in uh, South Arkansas of course, Exxon has got involved, and in, um, it's in the Smackover uh, uh, play there. And you know, it's going to transform that yeah. part of how many lives Smack Smackover had.
1: You know, because <laughs> I mean, it's been uh, you know boom and bust area, right? Oh, I but, know it. You know, when oil in the old days was booming, I mean, gosh, I've seen old pictures, you know, and it just looked like it was a great time to be in Smackover. And then that kind of died down and all. And then of course you had all the fracking activity going yeah. on in Arkansas, and now you have this lithium find. So yes, it's uh, it's great. It's great for the state. It's great for our country. And so yeah, I
0: look forward to seeing how all that plays out. Something else that's interesting is um, I'm I'm on my second Elon Musk biography. I, the first one I read was called Elon Musk. Colin Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. I think I read that, I don't know, eight years ago or so. It was a great book. I read that same book. Did you? Yes. Wasn't that great? Yeah. Talked about him sleeping in the
1: office up there and yeah. making some of the programmers mad because he'd, he'd go and work on their
0: computer when they weren't there and I, change some code. I really didn't know who Elon Musk was before I read that. And that's, you know, eight years ago. I mean, I, I'd heard his name, but I didn't know much. And, um... So right now, there's a new one out that uh, Walter Isaacson wrote. I love, I mean, I think Walter Isaacson's the best biographer. I just really enjoy his work. But this just came out in 2023, and it's on Elon Musk, and it's terrific. But what made me think, you were talking at the very beginning of our discussion, you talked about innovation. Remember? Yeah. And I know you and I have talked a lot about innovation over the years, and it's a Interesting topic. But um, in the book, you know they were they were creating SpaceX. And um, at one point um, you know the, the rocket stages, they have different stages of the rockets. Um, Elon Musk calculated you know how much it cost per pound compared to a Tesla engine. For example, now maybe it wasn't a Tesla engine. yeah, I think it was I think it was, um, but it was a lot more. and he told his engineers this is un- unacceptable right uh-huh. He pushed it he pushed them on the timeline, the cost per you know pound and um, and he gave them impossible tasks, but he had really smart people, and they figured it out because he knew we've got to have reusable rockets and they've got to be inexpensive and you know having of course he's they've done great things on batteries as well how would you what do you think people
1: thought when he went to nasa and said i'm going to show you how to reuse rockets i mean they didn't i don't think they believed it yeah i'm, I'm a huge fan of Elon's. i mean you're talking about getting people to think differently he can do it. He, he, he can do it. And as he says in his own words, you know, he, he may have missed some timelines, um, but he does deliver in the end. So I, I think he's been great uh, for not only our country but for the world and really challenging people and show what can really happen when you put your mind to it. It's And he's he's going to, going to continue to do that. So I'm a fan. Um, can't wait to see what he comes out with next. Can't wait to see how... You know, those tesla trucks perform yeah you know, we we all have uh some ideas but we haven't uh very few of those are out there with the companies where you can really get the data Didn't so jb hunt yes jb hunt uh, ordered some trucks okay and um you know at jb hunt i would frequently get asked about uh how are our 40 trucks doing that we ordered in 2017 <laughs> and um John Roberts, our president and CEO, would say half jokingly, but um, serious at the same time. He said, Craig, you know, if you were in charge of ordering all our trucks in 2017, (laughs) we wouldn't have anything to (laughs) drive. So, but uh, yeah, the industry is waiting for them because if anybody can show us how to do something different, um, I'd bet on Elon. And again, it's um, it's maybe maybe that's why we hadn't seen it yet. Maybe he's still working out some things. But if he can do what he says he can do with uh, a 500-mile range and not much weight penalty and the battery with charging times that are more in line with what people need than uh, in chargers that stay up, um, then he he could be a game-changer. He is um, in that they proved out that they know some things that others don't with their, their charging system, because as others have adopted their charging system, you know, in the automobile side, it's because their chargers stay up. I mean, you hear these other horror stories about some of the different charging networks of, you know, numbers to the tune of like 20, 30% of the chargers aren't operating. You don't hear that with uh, the Tesla charging system. You hear that theirs are up and um, you know, people that have Teslas are huge fans of Tesla. So they have obviously have done a fantastic job of getting that product out and also getting their charging network set up. But I'll just caution people that the charging network for trucks is much different than it is for uh, automobiles. You know, we, again, all of us have our own power station that own homes. Now, if you're in multifamily housing, that, that's a different issue, but there's a the market's big of a lot of homeowners that could potentially have electric vehicles to charge and then again, we talked about that demand earlier about just um you know the the heavy duty segment would be require eleven percent demand increase of current uh grid system and then with all light duty medium duty and heavy duty, you're talking about a total of forty percent demand and then uh what where does that put uh automobiles? you know, and again, I get back to my lawnmowers, which would obviously be just a drop in the bucket, but it just shows you that it's, it's not a, it's not clear cut if we can't even get everybody to use electric lawnmowers and how are we going to get them to do electric cars? How are we going to get them to use electric trucks and and have the grid
0: infrastructure to charge all that? So this, again, the innovation is so interesting and you know, if Elon wasn't involved in it, we probably wouldn't be as far along as we are today. Um, and he's pretty focused on it still. Um, but um, what are some other companies that you're aware of that are doing a lot of R&D in this area? Well, I think you always got to look at Toyota. You know, uh,
1: obviously a great brand, great name in Toyota has come out and said that they plan on having a solid state battery. By late twenty twenty seven or twenty twenty eight, that could uh, weigh a fraction of the current batteries, charge a lot faster than the current batteries, and cost uh, much less. So, and they're talking about range of like on an automobile of up to seven hundred miles. Well, I mean, wow. you know, most cars right now, the gasoline cars, you know, they have a range of you know three hundred to maybe five hundred on the far end. Uh, and to get 700-mile range and get it in a timely manner with uh, electricity, would that could be a big game changer. Now, it gets back to the problem that we talked about earlier, though. Where's the power going to come from? And uh, why are we pushing so hard for trucks before we get all the cars charged where, again, all, Why is that? There's— so much of it, trucks go more miles, right? So they get a lot more attention that way. There's uh, the commercial side of being able to haul freight and, and charge for that freight. So people think that, okay, this is an area where um, there could be cost absorbed and passed on to the consumer. But that isn't necessarily the case. You know, when, when you talk to people who actually pay to have those services, to have their freight picked up and delivered they're in a competitive market too yes they they get questions from their investors and from their customers about what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint that puts pressure on those companies to look at options of lowering their carbon footprint and going to battery electric trucks would be one of those options but when you start talking about the issues that you run into it gets down to cost because when you start talking that the truck costs three times more, when you start talking about how many more trucks you're going to need to do the same amount of freight, think about it. If the, if the freight uh, cannot, same amount of freight can't be hauled because of the, the weight penalty. I mean, the weight penalty on some electric trucks it all depends on which one you get, which battery you get, how much rain you're going after. But it could range from 5,000 pound penalty up to 17,000 pound penalty. Okay, well, when you haul freight, the full load is approximately 44,000, 45,000 pounds on a semi-truck. So now if you're going to start cutting that freight volume down by 10%, by 30% because of the the weight issue, you're going to have to have more trucks to haul the same amount of freight. Now, if you have to say, gosh, I can't refuel in 15 minutes, so I'm going to have to be down for several hours if I slow charge, if you fast charge, who knows, 30, 45 minutes, an hour and a half, then you're going to need more trucks for that reason too because it takes longer to re-energize. So now you, you have two penalties there, the one with the weight penalty, the second one, the re-energizing uh, time penalty that you have. And then with the range, you're going to be limited on where you can run. And, you know, when you haul freight for customers, they don't want you just cutting the heart out of the watermelon. They, they expect you to be able to hook up to that load and deliver that load so there's uh, going to be bigger demand and then when on the power and then also when when you look at all this and you talk about the the cost and the energy footprint which sounds very good because zero emissions are coming out of the tailpipe but when are people going to start talking about the embodied emissions and I'm going to tell you that they're going to start talking about it pretty soon we're already seeing that in Europe and what I'm referring to there is the amount of emissions that go into manufacturing that vehicle, that go into uh, the production of that battery, to the, the mining of the, of the materials going into that battery.
0: And you, Does it also include the production of the electricity? That, yes, when you look at the total footprint. So it's called the embodied?
1: The the embodied is really about the production of the vehicle. Okay. The electricity. But when I look at the total carbon footprint, I'm talking about the embodied emissions that go into manufacturing that vehicle before you ever operate it. Then in addition to that, yes, you have the um, uh, amount of the the carbon footprint from producing that electricity, which a lot of people um, don't realize it isn't all green electricity. You know, a big chunk of our electricity coal. today is coal and natural gas. So it's And a natural gas fuel. is pretty clean. That, that's right. But, you know, there are people that are trying to eliminate natural gas. I mean, you hear all the debates about even trying to take it out of, of your cook stoves. So that's, that's something, too, Matt, that we really ought to talk about, is before you cut off any source of electricity, power source, to generate the electricity. We need to be sure we have a replacement. And we are shutting down coal plants. We're shutting down nuclear plants. There's talk about shutting down certain natural gas plants. Okay, where are you going to get the power? And we need to remember people talking about climate change, which we need to do. I'm a fan of talking about it. I'm a fan of cleaning up there and but you've got to understand, it's a global issue, and across the globe, we're actually using more coal today than we have been. Is that mostly because of China? China and, and India are two of the big reasons for that. So it's like, let's again, let's go to the facts. Let's look at the facts. Let's let's get let's get the comments out on the table improve those comments to be facts. You know, as I say, fact, facts don't change. If it's a fact, it should be a fact that is true for that point in time. Yes, so things can change to make the facts, you know, be different. But don't, let's just don't put out numbers and statements and data. And even the ones I've said on this podcast, if there's some that need to be challenged, let's, let's challenge them. You know, I've got my sources as to where the numbers came from. Show me your sources where your numbers are coming from. Let's talk about them. And that's what irritates me that we, as, as a country, that we, we should be able to get some very smart people in a room and do this math and understand the challenge that we have before us and say, we need to, we need to conquer this. We've got an aging grid system. We've got demand that's going to increase and I'm talking about just in the U.S., but demand's going to increase. We're trying to increase it faster than what I believe we realistically can adjust to by putting this pressure on the, the trucking industry and trying to, to clean up many different areas by shutting off coal and by shutting off natural gas. So, so let's get those facts and see what we can really do, and then, then let's get after it. And let's talk about all forms of energy. Let's talk about nuclear you know, and one thing that, um, you know, the Conference of the Parties, COP28, was just held, where the countries come together and talk about uh, what's going on in climate and all. And the good thing out of that is they rolled out that they expect to be more nuclear, okay? And that, that's a change from what we've seen in many past yeah. years. But people need to get real that if we're going to cut off this electricity, where's the new source going to come from? Not only in the U.S., but worldwide, it's a bigger issue. You know, there's roughly 8 billion people in the world. 3 billion of those people use less electricity than you and I use with one refrigerator. Those people would like a better life. They deserve a better life. If any of your listeners out there uh, view themselves as humanitarians, they would like those people to have a better life. They believe they deserve a better life. Well, they need electricity. They need power. They need to be able to read and study at nighttime. They need to be able to have electrical appliances so people don't have to do all the household chores, uh, uh, hand-washing clothes. They need to be able to get off wood or dung being burned inside their living quarters uh, for for warmth and and to cook on. So they deserve power. Well, where's that power going to come from? And so most places, that's why you see many countries that are still burning a lot of coal and wood and whatever resource they can get their hands on to get that power to people. And they deserve to have that power. But again, get realistic about what does that mean for the world and what does that mean for us as the U.S.? And again, before we cut something off, where are we going to replace it? And that's why we need to do the math. I was recently up at MIT and we had uh, a session going on there, and I was talking, and they wanted to know about how we could all collaborate better and, and solve this, this issue that we have going on trying to get more electrification. And I said, I think a very important place to start is let's show people the math because, you know, math has been around a long time. It's uh, There are ways to double-check your math. And so we, we need to come together and get what all those – variables are that need to go into the equation and look at the answer and then come up with a, a real solution to how we're going to get there.
0: You know, this point, in some ways you could say, well, it's obvious, right? But, but I think you're right. People aren't thinking about the total embodiment or mm-hmm. how was this electricity generated? You know, it's not like it's, okay, well, yeah, you plug it in, and you don't smell anything or see any fumes coming out of a pipe. But there was electricity generated with coal or, or natural gas. Or um, I, I think there also sometimes is this concept that well, this is going to come from solar and uh, types of renewable energies. But there's been so many getting back to the math. There's been lots of analyses showing that it's very limited what we can do and. To your point with our power grid, the renewable energy is often far removed from populations that need it. Now, the power grids, the technology around power grids have improved dramatically. But we're not using that best in class. You could say that's possibly a defense issue. Yeah, we've um we
1: need to be sure and um get our grid up to date. I mean because it's uh, it is a uh a risk for our country and that if we don't have it in the condition that it needs to be uh, to where it can withstand uh surges in power, where it can withstand um you know, God forbid, attacks in certain areas and all. There needs to be redundancy built in. And we talking about shutting down America, if there was attacks on certain key power stations, that could indeed be um basically
0: cripple certain areas. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean no one wants to think about this, but <clears throat> Russia and China now have all these hypersonic missiles they're building that could get here in an hour, under an hour. And they could be equipped with electromagnetic pulse weapons that could take out our grid pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you're getting
1: above where I usually play in this area, but there, there's no question we need to better understand what we're asking for when we say we want to convert uh, so much of our way of doing life to electrical movement which again i'm in favor of i've seen the results of it you know again the the vehicles uh, drivers level them you know you you have great acceleration Uh, you don't smell like diesel i mean there's all these these positive things going on on the transportation side but at the same time we need to understand um, where, where does the redundancy come from because think about Hurricanes, mm-hmm. okay, think about people getting out of town. You've seen all the photographs, the video of people leaving um, towns that are being stricken by hurricanes. okay, How are people going to get out if they uh weren't charged up? people that or
0: if they have to sit in long yeah lines of traffic Yeah. I would
1: say they're they're not gonna be burning. It, they're not going to be consuming a lot of electricity while they're sitting still they, they're that's, just to, that's a good point. to cool their vehicle. But, but still, uh, if they didn't fully charge that night before, or if everybody, um, is in a panic situation goes out and tries to fill up their uh, electric battery, the way that we all do our vehicles. And you see the run on fuel supply, then that's going to put a big burden on folks because think about it with fuel. The fuel companies do a great job of mobilizing gallons from one part of the country to the part that needs them. Okay, you can't do that with electricity. You know, there are limits on how much can go through the lines, limits on where the distribution goes, limits on where it comes from. So um, if you have a natural disaster going on, that could put some... uh uh But people in extreme danger
0: of not being able to get out the way they need to get out. Well, you know, the other thing is when the government tries to determine how our, where we're going to do things, you know, limit, like right now we've got lots of sources of electricity. As government officials limit that, we've got to be aware that they may be Doing some of this for virtue signaling, not for optimization of our economy and for our safety, we know this, right? It, does, it seems like it goes on all the time. There's virtue signaling or trying to appeal to certain groups as opposed to trying to do what's best for the country. Let's uh, note saying uh, don't throw the baby
1: out with the bathwater. You know that we, we'd like to get there clean. But let's be sure we we know what we're asking for. Again, I get back to if you're going to shut down these sources of energy, what are we going to replace it with? And um, it's having air that is not as clean as what we'd like is not good, you know, especially, you know, how to clean it up. But what's even worse is having to shut down that hospital because you don't have enough power. And you got medical procedures that can no longer be performed. When you have a state such as California that talked about, let's go all electric by a certain time frame. And on the same weekend saying, don't charge your car because it's going to put too much demand hmm. on the grid system. Um, okay, what, what are we saying there? And now you're wanting to go all electric, not only on cars, but on trucks. So and many other states have said they're gonna follow. Now, personally, I think that will slow down because I think people are gonna see again that the math uh if it was done correctly, it's not gotten into the right hands of people that are willing to listen. You get some people and I've been on calls with certain people to where they say, I don't care. I just know we need to do it for climate's sake. Well, And talking about getting off fossil fuels. Well, let's be sure you know what you're saying there. Because do you know what that means as far as uh, what hospitals are not going to be able to run? Do you know what that means for not having the ability to to move and and leave a serious situation? Like if there is a wildfire or if there is a hurricane. So people need to, again, get real about it. And let's not go to these extreme measures of, you know, gluing yourself to a runway or, or or throwing paint on some kind of national monument or well known painting in the name of let's get off fossil fuels. Why don't we work to show people the math about how dirty you think the air and believe the air is and why we need to make a change. Okay, but then let's come up with the follow-up piece of that. How do you suggest we make that change? You know, just don't be a complainer. Let's be someone that can come up with a, a solution to the situation. Yeah. And
0: you think about it, the government didn't say to Elon Musk, you need to build electric cars and innovate here. He did it because he saw an opportunity. And similarly, they didn't come down and say, you've got to figure out how to solve our uh, space uh, problem. We're, we're falling behind. But he did it. And there's a lot of that that goes on and it's harder, to, and actually, if you look at the, the pollution in the United States over the past 100 years, there have been huge improvements. Um, some countries have gotten worse. Some countries have gotten better. Um, but um, why did we improve? We should probably be looking at why have we improved? What drove those improvements
1: People are curious. People would like to innovate. When there's Let the problem be known, and people will fight and push hard to come up with a solution. And yes, you can say, oh, they're doing that because they they want to prosper. They're greedy. Well, that may be the case with some. If it benefits humanity, is that all wrong? Now, I do know some people do it simply because they want to do good. But for whatever reason, I think if we make the problems known and allow people to voice what their their findings are. Regardless of what their motivation is, which we'll never know. That's right. You That's can't know what their motivation is. Exactly. But the point you're making about our air has gotten cleaner. It's like, again, in the trucking space, when you look at um, some of the pollutants that come out in the air out of the truck, it now takes 60 trucks to put out the same amount of air pollutants that one truck put out in 1980. What? Yes, Sixty that again. It takes sixty trucks. Sixty trucks to put out the same amount of air pollutants that were put out by a truck. One truck in 1980. Just in 1980. Yes. So in 43, going on 44 years of improvement. There's been of years. There's been substantial improvement. Well, you know,
0: the other thing, even beyond that, I mean, yeah, that's true. But think about intermodal.
1: Yeah, we, you know, that still blows my mind about, you know, when people talk about what they would like to do to reduce their carbon footprint. And I'd say, well, first and foremost, you need to be sure every load that can go intermodal is going intermodal. Because that can reduce your carbon footprint of more than 60%. And that that has been substantiated. Again, going back and doing the math, and I know the math is being redone on that. Because people believe it's closer to seventy percent. So, um, when people talk about what can you do to reduce my carbon footprint, and you show them that okay, you can do, uh, you can go to electric vehicles, but let's look at the total amount of the the carbon footprint again, going from that embodied carbon to the generation of the electricity itself. Let's look at that whole cycle of, about what is going on there, and you'll see that. It, there's no better way than to go intermodal. And so when people I say, what price are you willing to pay to go intermodal as a premium? And people go, oh, no, we use intermodal because it's a more efficient way to move freight. It's actually a lower cost to move freight because, gosh, you can move 250 loads at a time. Um, and you go, well, hold on a second. If you can reduce your carbon footprint by 60% or more, then shouldn't that be worth the premium of um, you know 7% or 19% or even up to 60% and go, oh, no,
0: we, we, we want to use that when it's a, a less cost? You know, this is interesting, right? So the cost is lower, and therefore there is a lower carbon footprint. They're correlated. I know when Walmart really got big into sustainability, trying to reduce their carbon footprint, Back in 2006, one of the metrics they looked at was um, gallons of fuel per package delivered. In other words, I I may have the metric a little off, but it was how many gallons of fuel or how many packages can be delivered per gallon. I think that was it. And, or per unit, maybe it was liter, I'm not sure. And their goal, Lee Scott said, was to to double the number of packages delivered per unit of fuel. And they, they did that, they exceeded it. But at the same time, you think about it from a total cost perspective, what else did they reduce? Mm-hmm. They reduced their cost. Yeah. So there was an economic motive to do this anyway. But the nice thing was is it helped you focus on something. Yeah. It's one of those uh, win-win situations, right? Absolutely. But, yeah, so
1: yeah, it, people need to really look at intermodal and people go, well, maybe it takes a day longer transit. Uh, maybe it takes two days longer transit on an extremely mm-hmm. long-length haul. Well, okay, figure that into your carrying cost. Use the 6%, 8% interest rates. Hopefully they're going down. But use, use those numbers right, and see what it is. Again, that's math. Yep. Okay, but if it's a 60% reduction and you're telling me that you're not willing to pay a premium, then how? why are you even asking the next question about what are you doing to reduce my carbon footprint? Good point. So, yes. I'm a it huge. shows they're not working on the math. That's right. I'm a huge fan of, of intermodal. And what's great about it
0: is it's available today. So, when... For the listeners, not everyone knows what we're talking yeah. about here. When we say intermodal, we're talking about um, a regular truck, 53-foot trailer being pulled to a rail yard, the container, you know, we have a container on a chassis. It looks like just a regular trailer, but it's a container on a chassis being put on a, uh, a, a, a rail car Um um, well car, they're called well cars, and they, they have them so that you can double stack them, 53-foot well car. And then it goes to another point in the country, and it's picked up by another truck. So it's taken off of the rail car and put on the chassis on the truck. And that that's, um, I can't remember, um, but you can pull a lot of, you can move a lot of freight that way And not only one thing you didn't mention, it's true that it reduces the carbon footprint dramatically, but it does other good things. It it takes, think of how many trucks it takes off of the road. I don't know what
1: it is. Well, every train carries approximately 250 loads. So you could say each train that goes by, there would be like 250 trucks. Needing to pull that same amount of freight, so that reduces traffic congestion reduces, and it's safer, which,
0: which reduces maintenance on roads, which reduces uh, the need to build new capacity, and so in some ways it might even be more than seventy percent because if you think about it, if you've got a certain level of traffic, you know, and you move a bunch of, of uh, shipments to intermodal all of a sudden that traffic can flow more smoothly.
1: You know, again, it gets into one of those things you were talking about a minute ago. Sometimes when you do something good, there's a lot of other good benefits that you really don't capture all of them. And you're right, because when we talk about that 60% or more reduction in carbon footprint, we're not taking into account that, yes, it's going to be less traffic on the road now because these loads are moving intermodally instead of having one truck for each one of those loads. And what's great about it too, and I saw this firsthand firsthand, was, you know, J.B. Hunt really got into the intermodal world. When I started at the company in 1992, they were bringing in the containers in big numbers. And I remember talking to drivers, and they would say, gosh, my miles are going to go away. You're putting that long length of haul load where I usually get good miles on the train. How am I going to make money? It's a terrible thing. Well, again, and uh, if you ask someone at J.B. Hunt, which jobs are in the greatest demand? It's those local, dedicated, and intermodal jobs. Because you're home at night. You're home at night, and even some of those jobs are regional, meaning the driver gets home maybe two or three times during the week, but not every night. And they they love those jobs. Why? Because they can make good money. They they can make good money in their home. Drivers want the same things you and I want. They want to be able to take care of their family, and they want to be able to make a good wage doing that, and they want to be respected. And be home and see that family. So anyway, intermodal provides great for that.
0: And well, that reminds me of another thing: the so-called. and I know this is debated, but I'll call it the driver shortage. If you take a microeconomic look at it, it maybe something else, but let's just call it the driver shortage for for now. It solves that problem too. The more intermodal you have, the less uh, of a. There, there's no question. If you if you if you do the math right, if you have loads
1: going on the train versus over the road, then obviously you need less trucks, right? You have trucks on each end of that, but they can deliver more than one load a day. They can make several trips back and forth. So yes, you would need uh, less drivers for that. But here's something else. We got to do the math again that with the expected growth in freight demand, you're going to need many more drivers than what we have today. So it'll
0: be even worse. That's right. And so, and, and if, you convert to, if you convert to electric, you actually push it in the other direction yep. in terms of drivers. That's right. Because now are you going to be able to use that piece
1: of equipment and that driver to the full potential? And uh, is, you're going to be very
0: challenged because, again, that time to, to charge. Well, uh, Craig, legal. I always learn so much when I talk to you. And, again, I, I really learned a lot of things I didn't know. Um, before this this discussion. So I think our um, listeners will really enjoy it. Thank you for taking time to do this. I really appreciate it. Well, I I enjoy doing it. I love talking about the transportation issues. Love talking about
1: uh, drivers and can't wait to see how this challenge that we have in front of us with um, pushing a lot of our transportation to uh, electric vehicles, and it will go that way. But I can't wait to see how it's going to evolve and be developed. And there's no clear winner, you know, because as we talked, just mentioned briefly, you know, you've got battery electric, you have hydrogen fuel cell. Which one's going to win out? Um, I say stay tuned, you know, but for right now, I see battery electric vehicles is where the, the primary um, focus will be and results in the short term. But yes, there's a lot of money going into infrastructure for hydrogen fuel cell, but that probably needs to be a whole nother podcast because there's much debate about those two different uh, types of vehicles and what that means in the uh, repowering of each one of those types of vehicles.
0: If you're finding value in this podcast, we greatly appreciate your support by subscribing to our YouTube channel. Additionally, following us on Apple and Spotify and leaving up to a five-star review would be immensely helpful. We welcome any feedback or questions related to the podcast, as well as suggestions for further topics and guests. You can leave your comments on our YouTube channel and rest assured that I will read each and every one of them. Please also take a moment to check out our podcast sponsors as they play a critical role in keeping this podcast running. For more information on specific topics, timestamps, or links to articles mentioned during the podcast, head over to mattwallerpodcast.com.